The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Liz Carlisle. She is the author of Lentil Underground, Renegade Farmers and the Future of Food in America. She is a native of Montana and worked for Montana Senator John Tester. She is a fellow at the Center for Diversified Farming Systems at the University of California, Berkeley. She holds a degree from Harvard in folklore and mythology and a Ph.D. in geography from UC Berkeley. She also works closely with the Berkeley Food Institute, Department of Geography, and the Berkeley Student Food Collective. And just as a side note, she is a talented, popular country music singer with a beautiful voice. In fact, in one interview, she likened her book to a book-length country song. So, Liz, welcome. Thanks, Melinda. Thanks for that generous welcome. Well, you do have a beautiful voice, and I think probably most listeners are wondering, just as I was, what led you from being a very successful young country music singer to going down this path of folklore and then geography? Well, I love the stories that farmers told about how they cared for their land. And that was really what drew me to country music in the first place. My grandmother was a farmer growing up in Montana. I heard a lot of that rural tradition and oral tradition reflected on country radio. And I saw myself as sort of a storyteller, really, in the country music world. But then the stories I heard from farmers had all these elements that I couldn't fully understand. You know, they had to do with the farm bill. They had to do with the structure of the agricultural economy. There were elements of what they were doing ecologically with the complexity of their systems that I didn't understand. So I felt the need to go back to school and gain some context and also really to go back to school with farmers, you know, and work in a participatory project for a long period of time with a group of farmers and sort of, you know, write this country song at more depth, in a sense, that has that agrarianism that really drew me to stories of the rural West in the first place, but maybe with some meat on it, you know, with how we could actually achieve that in the policy spheres, the economic spheres, and in our farming systems. Interesting that you mentioned your grandmother, because I believe it was a blog that you wrote where you mentioned that your grandmother had told you cautionary tales from her Dust Bowl childhood in western Nebraska. How did her stories influence your path? I think my grandmother, Helen Gordon, influenced me very deeply and in two ways. And one of them was just this deep love of the land and this connectedness to other beings. She grew up in this relationship with animals and plants because she was on a farm in an era when, you know, a trip to town was a really, really big deal. And so those were like part of her family, really, those non-human beings that were part of her farm. And then the other aspect was going through this tragedy at the Dust Bowl and having to leave that farm, going to an urban environment. She was a brilliant teacher throughout her career, but she always missed that connection that she'd had to the land on her farm. And she understood that 
people had a role in creating this Dust Bowl tragedy, that it wasn't just a, a quote-unquote natural disaster, but that there were elements of the structure of agriculture that were deeply flawed and that we needed to solve those in order for individual farmers to be able to make sustainable choices. Yeah. Did she identify any specific problems that she saw rising to the top? Yeah, well, you know, she said there's just this hunger to produce more and more and more, and it's not like farmers don't understand that we need to rest the land and we need to rotate crops, but because of this philosophy of maximizing production, we end up structuring the economy that way, and then the individual farmer doesn't have a choice. And then she said, you know, that's not good for the economy in the long run either. So there needs to be this balance between restoration of the land and utilizing the land for production. It's so interesting because from a dietitian's perspective, of course, the industrial agricultural voices try to reach us and tell us that we have to have this maximum production model in order to feed the world. And, you know, those of us who work in public health are very sensitive to people not being hungry and having them be well-nourished. And so the maximum production model fits so well with that way of thinking. And yet you discovered through working with farmers that the maximum production model might be okay in the short term, but not the long term. That's exactly right, yeah. And we need both intragenerational food security and intergenerational food security. And we also don't have a problem with producing enough food. We produce enough food for everyone to eat. You know, we have distribution issues. We have democracy and equity issues, food waste. You know, these are all reasons why many, many people, nearly a billion, don't get enough to eat. And, and others, of course, suffer from diet-related disease. So we have a lot of issues to tackle in our food system. But I think it's been a misnomer to think that increasing yields or maximizing production is going to solve them. Because it certainly seems from, you know, the record of history that, in fact, the opposite is the case, that that's made matters worse. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to just backtrack a little tiny bit and just remind our listeners that the United Nations has declared 2016 the International Year of Pulses. So your book could not be a more timely text to read. In case anybody is wondering, there are no recipes, at least that I found, for lentil soup in here. Rather, this is a book for, it's a recipe for a stronger agricultural nation. That's such an eloquent way to put it, Melinda. I love that. Well, you know, I think when you read the title Lentil Underground, people might think, oh, great, there'll be some recipes. But it's not that kind of recipe book that we might think. So I want to launch into a little bit about your story in creating this book. How did you connect with the farmers that you describe in these pages? Yeah, well, to kind of get back to my days as a country singer, when I realized that I wanted to learn more about policy and economics and get involved with the public governance of our agricultural system, that coincided really nicely with an organic farmer from my home state being elected to the U.S. Senate. This is John Tester in 2006. So in 2008, I went to work for him. I quit my job as a country singer, and I went to work in that office as a storyteller of sorts, a legislative correspondent for agriculture and natural resources. And it was through him that I met this incredible network of farmer scientists who over 30 years were innovating a different food system for central Montana. 
And I got so curious about this work that I realized that's where I was going to dig in deep for many years and then went to graduate school to facilitate a project with those farmers. So how did you hook up with David Oyen and let our listeners know who he is and why he is the central character in this story? Yeah. Well, in the tester office, people would tell me that lentils were key to these newer sustainable farming systems because the farming systems they'd had were monocultures of wheat and, in some cases, barley. And because those used so many soil nutrients, principally nitrogen, they were having to use a lot of chemical nitrogen fertilizer to try to restore the land in between crops of wheat or even during crops of wheat. But over time, of course, this led to soil erosion, nitrogen pollution in the waterways, and it was really expensive. It took a lot of fossil fuel to make this nitrogen fertilizer. So if the global fossil fuel markets were high, it was a really expensive proposition to farm this way. So what farmers needed in order to get out of this chemical nitrogen cycle was to have a biological source of nitrogen, and that meant using a legume, a plant that could pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere and work with bacteria to fix it into a plant-available form in rotation with grain. And this was really challenging in Montana because of the short growing seasons and the semi-arid conditions. So something like a soybean wouldn't work. It, it didn't have time to grow to maturity in Montana's short growing seasons. But they looked around the world at other similar climates and discovered that lentils were probably worth trialing at least. So this is David Oyen, who's one of the central characters who in the 1980s comes back to his family farm. You know, he's a 27-year-old guy in the late 70s, decides to come back to the family farm in Conrad, Montana, but he doesn't want to do the chemical approach and probably can't make money that way anyway because it's a small farm. So he decides to start experimenting with lentils and then, uh, you know, eventually kind of ropes a bunch of his neighbors into it and is now at the center of this business that markets lentils and other ecologically appropriate rotation crops. Now, your research for this book, and I do want to let our listeners know, this is a nonfiction work, but it reads so easily and well, it's very difficult to put down. So it's nonfiction of the best kind. It's truly entertaining. But there were several things that rose to the top to me. For example, you know, here's David Oyen, and he's getting into farming, and he's not using chemicals. And I've always been curious about individuals who can say no to the path where most people are going. So, for example, you know, you've got this whole community that's using chemicals, that's deemed the norm, and then you've got an outlier who says, no, I'm not going to do that. How do they manage that cultural tension? Mm, that's a great question. And I think, you know, for David, I think it was a deeply spiritual question. He was coming out of a religious studies degree, first at the University of Chicago and then at the University of Montana, and was deeply influenced by American Indian spirituality. Read Black Elk Speaks, studied with scholars of Native American religion at University of Montana and many people who were elders in that tradition, and just really came to feel that care for creation and a collaborative relationship with Mother Earth was imperative in our human lives. And, and at the same time, people from his father's generation were dying of cancer, neighbors were going bankrupt. There were clear crises. And so I think for him, there was no alternative, you know, whether you looked at it as an ethical issue or a health issue or an economic issue. It just had to be figured out some way. Yeah. 
this sentiment about agriculture relying on indigenous wisdom, that's not what's taught at land-grant universities, at least from my perspective, largely in the Midwest. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, fortunately, we've seen that shift to quite an amazing degree that there are more and more programs in sustainable agriculture. There's more of a recognition of multiple forms of knowledge. There's calls for participatory research. But certainly at the time that David was in college, he didn't pursue an agriculture degree for just that reason. He didn't see it as the knowledge he needed. Right. I think that's such an interesting observation about how he got where he was. You know, he wasn't indoctrinated. I know that a lot of the youth today that are involved in, say, FFA programs or the 4-H program, there's so much heavy influence from the corporate industrial side that it's almost as if individuals' minds are made up before they get back to the farm. And it's why I think your book is so important, because it is a model for a way out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the root of that way out for all the people who've engaged in this movement, who, by the way, come from really different perspectives and backgrounds and and politics even, has been that they've been at some point exposed and have developed for themselves, exposed to and have developed for themselves an analysis of power and an understanding of, you know, being skeptical of information that they get from different sources and understanding, you know, what the interests are that lie behind that information. So whether that's because their parents or grandparents were involved in grain cooperatives in the early 20th century that were concerned with grain consolidation then, or in Dave's case, I think the movements of the 1960s, the anti-war movement was really quite influential for him, and this notion that the grown-ups in colleges may not have the most accurate information all the time. Yeah. You need to you need to question this received wisdom. Right. And, you know, for someone who's my age, I'm pushing 60. So for me, I remember going to school and thinking, these people who are my professors, they have all the answers. And I really wasn't taught to question that. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I would say the same for myself, that when I was an 18-year-old leaving high school, going into college, I was a pretty deferential person. And it's been really valuable for me to understand that there are multiple forms of knowledge and, um, you know, that you should, as a, as a farmer, you should really value your experience in addition to what can be learned in a book, that, that people who over multiple generations have gotten to know a piece of land know some things that are very specific you know, as opposed to a more abstracted conception of land or land management. Mm-hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined by Liz Carlisle. She is the author of Lentil Underground, Renegade Farmers and the Future of Food in America. What I love about this book, Liz, and I've heard you speak, you can listen to Liz on YouTube, you can listen to her sing, and you can also hear some of her short explanations about the book and why she wrote it. But part of the reason why I really wanted to interview you is because you have identified the power of community. And in America, we are raised to be rugged individualists, right? So especially coming from the West, each man is on their own. 
And yet you're saying, no, actually, that's not the answer. We have to go back to understanding that community is the key for our collective survival. Absolutely. Yeah. I think in many ways, the lentil underground is sort of a, a revisionist parable of the American West. And sometimes when I speak to classes, I'll show this picture of John Wayne on one side and, and lentil roots on the other and say, who are we as a people and, and who are we as an American West that often is an engine of our thoughts about what this country stands for? And absolutely, it, it's so much about community. It's about recovering histories of mutual aid and barn raising and understanding that the real way people have survived and prospered in the American West is all about community and all about sharing. It's never been about this competition and rugged individualism, that that eventually leads people to failure and bankruptcy and misery. And that's really a lesson, I think, for for people all over the world and, you know, sort of holds up, I think, stories from other parts of the world in which people have managed to do this. And goodness, don't we need this wisdom in a time of climate change? Absolutely. You know, I love one of the quotes that you brought forth, that it was David Oyen's father who said, I'd rather have the neighbors than the neighbor's farm. And I thought that was a beautiful way, and it took me immediately to my own travels through the Midwest, where I see so many crumbling rural communities. And it's such a shame, and I'm sure that you too, as a traveling country singer, you too saw these ghost towns almost of communities that we wish we could grab back. Yes, yeah, and communities in struggle people who really want to stay on their land and who want to remain in their communities. And that's really what inspired me to, to move on in my life and, and try to learn more about the policy issues and the economic issues is these farmers I would talk to after my shows who would say, I believe all of that beautiful stuff you're talking about. How can we actually do it? <laughs> yeah. And so tell me a little bit about how we can do it. You know, how did David get this machine rolling? Yeah. Well, you know, I think the short answer is community organizing. And it started for him with the people most immediate to him, which was his fellow farmers, and getting other farmers to collaborate to change just what was on their farms, to work together to figure out literally, like, which lentils will grow here, when do we plant them, how do we space them, what equipment can we use, all these kinds of questions that the universities couldn't answer for them because they still didn't see this as a viable alternative. And then once they'd figured out how to make it work on the farm, then they had to collaborate with a larger group to figure out how can we fund a processing plant and clean these to food grade and start to think about sending these out to natural food stores and developing a marketing and distribution network. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, So that was kind of with the precursor of the slow money movement, right. and now really working with people through that movement to continue what's now a social network, a social movement, and also this triple bottom line farmer-owned business that supports people with a completely different supply chain than what they had access to before, which was just commodity grain. So I think, you know, this is a model that has worked for people in a number of places with different sort of locally appropriate economies that support healthy people, healthy environment, you know, kind of the total package of a sustainable, renewable economy. Mm -hmm. I heard you speak about local food and how, yes, we all want to enjoy these lentils. They're not grown in my neck of the woods. 
and yet we've got this local is great kind of paradigm, and it is, but you were describing how the real cost to the environment is not, say, shipping lentils across country, but it's with this conventional fertilizer. Right, yeah. So when we make choices about our food with the environment in mind, transportation to final point of sale actually only makes up about 4% of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the average American diet. So this notion that reducing our food miles is the best way to combat climate change with respect to the food system is is a little bit of a misnomer, that in fact 83% of those greenhouse gas emissions associated with our diet relate to practices on the farm. And and much of that goes back to this fertilizer, which is so expensive in, in fossil fuel and emissions terms. So what I was calling for, I wrote this op-ed a year ago on Thanksgiving, and I was calling for people to think about how their dietary choices could impact this production. So that means, yeah, probably a lot of local food in terms of fresh vegetables and fruits, you know, ideally from your own garden. Right. Maybe from somebody who you subscribe to their community-supported agriculture or maybe a farmer's market. But then also thinking about where do your grains and legumes come from, And that might be on sort of a domestic fair trade basis. So you're buying from a little further away, but you're supporting this this ecosystem in a place like Montana that's going to reduce climate change. And then also, of course, international fair trade. So if you're drinking coffee or eating chocolate, you know, that's an opportunity to be in a partnership with growers in Central America, for example, who are stewarding an ecosystem there. And since we're all subject to the impact of climate change, I think it's becoming more and more clear to people that we are globally all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very curious about what you wrote about how GMO wheat is being pushed on us, even though I don't think there's anybody that wants GMO wheat. Certainly it's going to hurt American exports, but even among the consumer population that that I communicate with, it's not like we're asking for this. Somebody is pushing it to make a profit from the chemicals that go along with these GMO crops. Tell me how the renegade farmers fought back against GMO wheat. Well, you know, I think we're seeing it actually in the news right now again. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, just I think the main thing that's happened in this GMO debate is farmers and consumers continually asking for information. There's a great book that a couple of geographers in Minnesota wrote about the advocacy issue of GMOs and really how amazing it is that this became a matter of public debate at all, that you have this rather arcane science that probably without any intervention would have just gone completely under the radar and people wouldn't know that this was a part of our food system. But a committed group of activists who could see where this might lead to really called for more information and made this a matter of public dialogue. So I think what it's been is just continually raising the question and continually saying, you know, this is an issue that needs to be debated publicly, not a decision that should be made by a small group of supposed experts out of the public eye. Absolutely. And I thought it was interesting how you described how one of the farmers was concerned about potential impacts on human health and the environment. And of course, that's the world that I live in. But as a seasoned activist and farmer, he knew that the most convincing argument for a precautionary approach to this new technology was going to be one of economics. 
Yes, and that's the politics in Montana, is that you have a split population in terms of how they feel as a consumer about GMOs, but you have a unified population in terms of they know that this is going to affect their bottom line because they can't sell their grain in many markets that have rejected GMOs. And that's now looking like it's going to include domestic markets as well. It started with concern about will we be able to sell to Europe or Asia if we go down this road. But now, you know, with multiple states talking about GMO labeling and and the private sector taking action as well, you know, major grocery chains saying they don't necessarily want GMOs, a farm-based economy anywhere would be nuts. Mm-hmm. to take this path. Right. I agree with you. We just have a few minutes left. I knew that our time was going to fly together, but I have to talk to you a little bit about your methodology. And I think it's fascinating. You describe, you have a note section, you have a glossary section. So notes on sources, and you describe how you did your research, and you describe this ethnography which allows social science researchers to develop partial cultural literacy in the communities where they conduct research. Do you find that this method of research is as respected or as seen as vigorous as the kind of bench science that's throwing us or giving us this industrial model? You know, I think probably it's not as widely known about I think what is circulated more in public science writing are stories about bench science or experiments or surveys. You know, those are methods that are more familiar to people. The way I see it is that quantitative approaches like that and qualitative approaches like ethnography or oral history really are complementary. One of my advisors described it as, you know, in order to know what questions you're going to ask in a quantitative study, First, you need to do a qualitative study to even understand what the questions are. And there are some great examples of people trying to tackle big problems, first with a survey or with an experiment, and then they realize later that they were actually asking the wrong question. (laughs) So, you know, I think what's valuable about ethnography and this immersive approach and, and going in without assuming that you already know what the questions are or what sort of the baseline assumption should be is that you have an opportunity to work iteratively, to, to continually change your framework for thinking about the issue in the first place, and then ask new questions as a result. And also to hear things that people are maybe saying more subtly. In an interview context, you're going to get somebody's first cut on what they would say publicly in answer to a particular question. But if you spend multiple months with them, you might understand in more nuance the way they're approaching something through their behavior, their conversations with other people or their body language. There's a lot of different ways that people express themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are astute observations. You know, I've been leading this conversation with my questions. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Hope. (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it really is a much better time for the farmers that I work with than it was when they got started 30 years ago. And that's entirely the result of increased collaboration and interest on the part of non-farming people who understand that they have a stake in what happens in agriculture. 
So I just really want to salute everybody who's interested in being a food citizen and, you know, let you know that you have a lot of power in that role, however you exercise it, through voting or getting involved with school food, where your kid goes to school, organizing in your conservation district, whatever it is. You know, this movement has had some real successes in the past 20, 30 years. So let's have hope. That's a wonderful send-off for our listeners. Thank you so much. In closing, I want to thank my guest, Liz Carlisle, author of The Lentil Underground, Renegade Farmers and the Future of Food in America. And you can read more about her work at lentilunderground.com. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again for being my guest, Liz. Thanks, Melinda. Thank you.